Turn in your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Romans 1, 8 through 13. It's a bit of, he's not intending to be autobiographical, but he, he is in some ways. This is going to, uh, what I plan to do today is to basically relate this to the end of the book. And because, because as we've seen before, Paul, when he when he begins a book, he typically will uh, come back to those same themes at the, well throughout the book, but then he'll wrap it up and kind of bring those to uh, wrap them up real neatly toward the end of the book. So we're going to spend some uh, quite a bit of time in Romans 15 as well. And what I what I hope to accomplish today is to kind of give you a what I think is a is a glimpse into the mindset of Paul, what drives him, what motivates him. And it's not simply a not simply an exercise in in uh, psychology. It's an exercise in figuring out what our what how the the calling that God has put upon our lives is also um, should look what it should look like and and the way that we should envision ourselves. Uh, I don't think I mean yes, it's true that that in some ways um, Paul is going to be different. He's uh, He's an apostle. He's uh, seen the risen Lord. Yes, of course. Uh, but those who are in, in the Messiah are in him, and they, they have a calling as well, as we will, we will see. Let's, uh, let's pray for this stuff. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this, uh, this good time that you've given us, that, that we can open your word, that we can uh, get a glimpse into the big picture to see what it is that uh, you are doing in the world and, and how Paul saw himself within that world and how we also should see ourselves within the world where the righteousness of God is is uh, working its way through the world and, and the way that you have been faithful to the covenant promises that you promised long ago in the scriptures through the prophets. Uh, we just pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, not just uh, give us a glimpse into how Paul thought, but uh, but grasp us, hold on to us, uh, get hold of us, Father, that we might uh, find our calling as well uh, through the Word of God. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout all the world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have, I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, as we begin looking at this section, you will you'll probably see right away that it doesn't seem like there's a lot here. 
And it is true if we go looking for some uh, theology in this that we won't find a lot of it. However, I think this combined with, with the end of the book, we will begin to see what it is that has captivated the Apostle Paul and what it is that we ourselves ought to be captivated by. Beginning in verse 8, Paul opens with a prayer that he has for the Romans, opening the door gently to potential opportunities that he hopes to have through this church or this network of churches in Rome. We know from the end of the book that these were house churches, probably not one monolithic church, but numerous house churches in Rome. Since Paul hasn't traveled to Rome yet, the church there is not one that he himself has planted. And ironically, it's not Paul's policy to build on another's foundation. As he says, even at the end of this letter, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone's, someone else's foundation. But we shouldn't read this as a hard and fast rule if this letter is to inform us. He clearly is planning to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome, as he does throughout this letter. Chapter 1, verse 15. So I'm eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you who also who are in Rome. But as a general principle, he instead seeks to see and even to be the fulfillment of the scripture by being the one through whom the Gentiles who have never heard hear the good news of King Jesus. As he says later, 1521, but as it is written, those who have never been told will see and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason, he says, why I, have so, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Why is this? It seems to make no sense. Why would Paul say that those who have never been told of him will see and give this as the reason that he has never come to them? Evidently, Paul had sought to come to them before on the way to the ends of the earth, that is, to Spain. But he had been hindered because of the work that needed to be be done in other places before he went through Rome on his journey to Spain. We get a glimpse into his thinking about this in chapter 15 again. He says there, by the grace, of, by the grace given to me by God, I have spoken boldly to, boldly to you. He says, he has become a minister, this is 15 verse 16, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work towards God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul has been about the priestly work of offering up Gentiles as obedient sacrifices to God by bringing them to obedience to the gospel of Christ. As he says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. If you look at a map, if you look at a map of the, of the Roman emperor, uh, empire. What you will see is that Illyricum is basically right by the boot of Italy, where Rome
basically what Paul has said is that he has he has made he has made it all the way up to Italy, but he hasn't quite quite gotten there yet, and he has been about planting churches this whole time. It is almost in Italy where Rome is. He has almost made it there, but not to preach the gospel per se, but to visit them on his way to get to Spain, where those who have not heard will hear. But let's zoom out for a minute and ask what Paul's mindset was for himself and what it means for those in Christ. Part of the point of all of this, I think, is Paul didn't view himself simply in terms of moral man versus immoral man, as we often do. In other words, when he thought about himself and, and how God had, had saved him and called him, he didn't think of himself as simply this moral creature that, that was going to be uh, changed, made into a better guy, so that then one day he could go to heaven. No. Once he came to be known by God through Christ, through the vision that he, that he had with Christ, he didn't simply go about trying to make himself better and then think that that was the purpose of his life. If you read, if you read Paul, that's not the sense that you get for him, from him. No, he was given a mission, a calling, a service, and that is what defined his life. A priestly service, he says, that put him under obligation, he says in verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation, he says, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And this is a very important point that should make us all do a bit of assessment. We tend to think that we have been saved as an end in itself. That we were not good people one time, Jesus saved us, and now we're simply waiting for Jesus to take us home. Maybe he'll make us a little better in the meantime. He'll clean our act up for us a little bit, and then we'll go on, go to heaven. And there's some truth to, to this way of thinking. It is true that God, through Christ and the Spirit, cleans us up, and thankfully he does. And it is true that we are to be about putting to death the deeds of the body, as we'll see in Romans 8. There's no doubt about it. But all of this is because of what God is doing in the world for his namesake. For us, yes, but for the sake of his name throughout all the earth. It's also for those who are beyond us. God can love us and love others through us. We are not the end of God's work. And if we think we are, we're thinking like children who often think the whole world turns around them. Recall what Paul says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Listen to what he says. He's not interested merely in becoming a better person so that he can, uh, so that he can one day participate in the resurrection. No. It's about the ministry that he's been given. We are not islands, but are called into Christ 
for the sake of others. This seems to me to be inescapable. As I've said many times, God is making a family, a seed, and you and I will either be his instruments, his priests, if you will, in bringing this about, or we will be cast away. This seems to at least be part of what, what he's getting at in Romans 9 and, and 10, 10, 1 through 4 especially. Israel, according to the flesh, he says, has sought to establish a righteousness, a covenant membership of her own, without regard to God's way of renewing the covenant. That is, without regard to God's righteousness, which involved saving the Gentiles too. And they, that is, Israel after the flesh, have not obtained in the covenant renewal spoken of in Deuteronomy 30. Their way of being in covenant excluded the Gentiles. But God has been about including the Gentiles from the beginning. And if you think about Paul's life, think about Paul's life. What did he do when he came into a city? What did he do? He would go to the synagogue and he would preach. They'd usually throw him out on his ear. And then he'd go to the Gentiles. Everything was about this mission, this one mission, where he'd go to, the, to Israel according to the flesh and he'd say, listen, this is what God is doing in the world. Let's, uh, you need to believe that this is what he's doing. They wouldn't believe what he calls they're rejecting the righteousness of God. They're rejecting the involvement of God in the saving of the Gentiles. They, therefore, will be excluded. In some way, perhaps, not exactly in the, not exactly in the way, same way that Paul was, but in some way, we too are called to participate in God's mission of creating the single family of God. Paul had this mission focus, and he constantly had, had to defend that ministry because it looked so much like Jesus' own death. Paul calls this ministry of his and the other apostles becoming the righteousness of God, he says, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, as we'll look at in a moment. But first, we'll fill in a little bit more of Paul's story. Paul says that he has been hindered many times from going to Rome, as he says in 1.13, and also toward the end of 15.22. He says in 15.22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. And then he gives the reason. Not because he didn't somehow get a vision about it and think he wasn't, didn't feel like he needed to go. No, he had too much work to do where God had him, as he suggests in 15, 23, and 24, when he says that now there's no room for his work in the regions where he had already planted, so he must venture beyond Rome after returning to Jerusalem with an offering. We don't know exactly where he was when he wrote this book, but wherever he is in the Mediterranean, the northern Mediterranean, he's going to go back to Jerusalem, deliver an offering, and then he's going to make his way all the way back to Rome. Look at a map and see what, what, uh, what an amazing feat this is. I mean, travel was easier during that time with the Roman road system, but yet he's doing all this on foot, sometimes by boat, but he's doing all of it. And that's what's driving him, the mission, God's, righteous, God's righteousness. But now, he says in 1523, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul had, as an apostle, ensured that churches were planted in every region 
and were sufficiently being shepherded and led. And now he trains his sights on the region, uh, the region beyond Rome, Spain in particular, the tip of Europe as we know it. But he hopes both to impart some spiritual gift to them, aiding in their growth and to receive fruit from them while on his way. A layover of sorts, but not a vacation for Paul. Paul was about raising the dead and he would be the vessel through which this was done among the Gentiles. Now, I want to return to a phrase that I mentioned, uh, Paul's embodying of the righteousness of God. We're going to see this phrase used next week um, as we look at the way in which Paul says the gospel, uh, in it, in the gospel, the power of God is shown. And this is the, it's basically the embodiment of the, of the righteousness of God. It's a fair, fairly difficult phrase to define, the term righteousness of God. Um, and it's been a somewhat controversial phrase, even though by almost all accounts, the, fra the phrase is the theme of the whole book. We will return to it um, in detail next week, where we'll see how it is central to the book and how it controls the very story of the Apostle Paul. While we're on the mindset, though, and the mission of Paul, it's important to discuss this one element in his thought. We have talked about the way in which the goal of God was to create the one seed, the one family in the Messiah and through the Messiah. And we have seen over the course of the book of Galatians that Paul was firmly fixed on this goal as well. For to be a faithful minister of the good news is to be about the things that God is about. It is why, for instance, that he would insist that the Gentiles were not to take on the yoke of slavery of the law because the very purpose of the law, and a valid, though temporary one, was to separate the Jew from the Gentile, cutting, it off, cutting them off, as it were, from the blessing of Abraham. This was not what God was doing in the world. We saw there in Galatians how Jesus had become a curse for Israel, bearing the death of exile for the transgressions of Israel, so that the blessing of Abraham might go to the Gentiles, and that the Spirit, bringing the new covenant might be received by all, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Now this whole plan of God was, as Paul will always make clear, according to promise, involving both salvation and negative judgment, as we'll see beginning next week. The wrath of God is, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This whole group of ideas, though, that God is keeping his promise and bringing about a great deliverance for some, the new people of God from Israel and the nations, and wrath for others, those who reject this way of God's covenant fulfillment from Israel and also from the nations, is what, God, what Paul refers to as God's righteousness. Now, this is an odd way of thinking, very odd. This is not how we think of righteousness. So think about it. Think about what this means. I'll repeat it. This whole group of ideas that God is keeping his promises and bringing about a great deliverance for some and wrath for others is what Paul refers to as God's righteousness. In short, we might define God's righteousness this way. God's righteousness is God's covenant faithfulness to do what he promised the way he promised. God's righteousness is God's covenant faithfulness to do what he promised the way he promised. 
In this way, it is not something that he can give to someone else because God's plan and his faithfulness to that plan can't be given to anyone. It is not simply a moral quality, as we often think, where God gives you and me his perfect morality. It is not to be confused with a righteousness from God, a phrase which Paul also uses in this book, which is a status of righteous or in the family that God gives to those who believe in Jesus, accepting God's way of renewing the covenant. No, God's righteousness can't be given to anyone. It is his by virtue of who he is as Lord and judge. Once again, he is getting his categories from Isaiah. Isaiah 11:4. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide his fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the, with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. Note here the parallelism between righteousness and faithfulness. Tzedakah or tzedek and emunah. The parallel is very clear. Righteousness is virtually equivalent to God's faithfulness to do what he said he will do in the way that he said he would do it. It is the very clothing with which God is adorned as also his king, Jesus. Who has aroused one from the east? This is Isaiah 41, 2. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like the dust like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. I am the Lord, he says, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. This is what Paul is getting at. The righteousness of God is something that God himself possesses, and it's something that then works out through the world. God's calling of his servant Israel is in righteousness, here referring to God's plan executed through the servant according to his faithfulness to the covenant promises. Isaiah 51, 6, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not wane. Note the parallelism there. Righteousness, faithfulness earlier, righteousness, salvation here. God's saving purpose through his faithfulness to the covenant promises is what is in view broadly with this term, the righteousness of God. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, he says, 51.7, a people in whose heart is my Torah, do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revelings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. We don't think of righteousness that way. We think of it as some kind of moral quality, but it's not. God's righteousness is not. It is his faithfulness to bring about salvation, which he has promised long ago in his Torah. It is because of God's righteousness, his salvation or saving purposes, that we are not to fear man, 
This simply can't be his perfection that he gives to us. No, it's something like this. Those who know the Torah will know that God is acting according to plan, for they have the Torah in their minds, and they find themselves secure within it, even though people revile and reproach. Because God is executing his plan in accordance with his faithful purposes, and if we are in the middle of that, only what God allows will befall us, and that can be counted on. This is what Paul understood. And this is what we are to understand. To the extent that we have identified ourselves with the Messiah and with his righteousness, his saving purposes in the world, we can count on it. There are other nuances of the term righteousness, but Paul is with, with little doubt using it in accordance with Isaiah's usage. As we have seen, his very notion of the good news is taken from Isaiah. Now, this is where um, I'm, going into, I'm, I'm going to be going into a, a slight excursion into the righteousness of God, but I'm going to return to this again next week and look at it in relation to the verses that, are, that will come after this. Paul himself, as I hope you're clearly seeing, is captivated so much by God's righteousness, God's active, active judgment in executing the covenant through Jesus, and he is convinced that he, that is Paul himself and the other apostles, is at the center of the story of God's righteousness, working itself out through the world. Paul is convinced that he is at the very center of the story of God's righteousness that's working itself out through the world. In this way, he can view himself as participating in God's righteousness because he is the minister of the means by which God's righteousness comes about. Let me repeat that. He can view himself as participating in God's righteousness because he is the minister of the means by which God's righteousness comes about. It's not that Paul somehow possesses God's righteousness. As we've seen, this is not something that can be given away, but it is something that he can get involved in and participate in because he is the minister of God to the Gentiles. He is the one through whom the covenant promises are proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing, he says, and hearing by the word about the Messiah, as we'll see later in, in Romans. We get a clearer picture of this in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul has been describing the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the new covenant. Chapter 3, we could back all the way up to chapter 1, and, and 2 Corinthians is an amazing book, and it's all about the way that God has been faithful, but it's about the, the ministry that's been given to the apostles. The whole thing is about what does this look like? Paul is constantly having to defend himself against the, the super apostles who, who, who have a great presence. When they come, they can speak great words. They can be, they, they're very smooth in their speech. And he's constantly having to defend his own ministry because when he shows up, he can hardly see, he can hardly walk. And he doesn't look glorious, but he says, look, we've got this treasure in earthen vessels so that the glory, the, the majesty may be of God and not of us, right? He's constantly having to defend himself because his ministry looks like the cross. It looks like death. That's what it looks like. And so he's constantly having to defend himself. He's been describing the ministry of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 5, 
chapter 3, he, he compares and contrasts the ministry of death, which he calls Moses' ministry, with the ministry of the Spirit, demonstrating the difference in glory between the two. Chapter 4, he says, having this ministry of glory, the apostles don't lose heart. They don't faint. They handle the word without deceit, and they commend themselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. They preach Christ, the crucified, as Lord. Possessing, as it were, this treasure, he says, in earthen vessels, so that God's power is clearly seen, unlike the super apostles who make a good showing in the flesh. They bear in their bodies the death of our Lord, he says. Chapter 5, continuing on this theme of the apostolic ministry, Paul speaks of the ministry of reconciliation that he and the other apostles have, apostles have received. He says, being compelled by the love of God, they compel others. And those who respond positively, he says in, in chapter 5, they are a new creation. And then he expands on how the, the ministry of reconciliation operates. You see, he says, God was in the Messiah, reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And this very word of reconciliation has been given to the apostles, to the end that the, the apostles are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through the apostles, be reconciled to God. He's not speaking to the Corinthians and telling them to be reconciled to God. He's explaining his ministry. He's saying, look, it's as though God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. Everyone in general. This is the ministry they have received, and this is the ministry that Paul lives. And to summarize it, he says the following, which is crucial for our purposes today. The apostles' ministry looks like this, he says. Jesus, the one not knowing sin, he made a sin offering for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is often quoted and taken uh, completely out of context, but what Paul is doing in this is describing his apostolic ministry and the, the ministry of the other apostles. The ministry he and the apostles have been given resulting from the Messiah being made a sin offering, may be described, he says, as becoming God's righteousness. Now, we'll see this fits like a glove with, with God's righteousness being his faithfulness to do what he said he would do in the way that he said he would do it. Okay? If, if the apostles have been, they've made to, they're, they're made to become the righteousness of God, what this seems to mean, I, I'm convinced of it myself, what this means is that the apostles view themselves as fulfilling or becoming, embodying the righteousness of God throughout the world. He's going to quote from Isaiah 49 in the next chapter and say, look, this is the ministry of the servant and the ministry of the servant. We looked at this last week, the ministry of the servant and then the apostles is to um, become a covenant to, the net, to, uh, to Jacob, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and then also to become a light to the world. And he views himself as becoming, he and the other apostles, embodying, if you will, the, the, uh, the righteousness of God. Paul is saying that he and the others are embodying the very covenant faithfulness of God as they go forth in this ministry of reconciliation. It is the ministry of the Messiah himself, an extension of it, as it were. 
And that is precisely what he means by becoming the righteousness of God in him. So that last phrase, in him, is basically a way of saying, once they're in the Messiah, they've received the ministry that, the, that is the Messiah. It belongs to the Messiah. Look in Isaiah 49, the ministry of the servant, raise up the tribes of Jacob, and then go to the, uh, become a light to the nations. He's saying that this all happens in him. He's embodying God's faithfulness to his covenant and taking the word of God among the Gentiles. Now, I could say more about the language he uses here, but it's very important, I think, to see what he, how he kind of views himself and then for us to say, how do we view ourselves? Are we just saved just to be saved? Are we just saved to, to somehow uh, just become better people and, and then go to heaven one day? Is that what we're saved for? I think, you know, we could, we could make this distinction between ourselves and the apostle. And I think, yes, to some extent, that's right. They had a special mission. They were sent out by the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, but I think if we're in the Messiah, we have to come to grips with, with what our calling is. Right? I, I really don't think that God has called any of us to, to basically be an island. I think he's called us for a mission, called us not for ourselves, but for those who, who await the word of God. Paul, as God's ambassador, is seeking to make his way to Rome to obtain some fruit from among them like he has among the rest of the Gentiles. You hear it? You hear that mission? That's what he's about. He's going to obtain some fruit. He's going to pick some fruit. And he's, it's very much like, uh, remember from Mark, Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11 he sends to the vineyard, right? The vineyard is, of course, Israel. Uh, the, the one who owns the vineyard sends it to Israel, sends uh, his servants, the prophets, to Israel. What are they going to do? They're going to collect some fruit. They're going to get some fruit. They're going to say, what have you done with this vineyard? What have you done with this vineyard? Is it producing any fruit or not, right? And it's the same idea that Paul, Paul is, is on about in, in chapter 1 of, of Romans. He is going to receive some fruit from them and then be sent along on his way uh, to the rest of the world. He hopes this letter will be an advance, uh, an advance of what he will preach to them in Rome. Perhaps, it's an interesting thought, I don't know it, but perhaps as a something that he, can, he himself can expound upon his arrival where he seeks to refresh them and be refreshed by them to receive mutual encouragement from one another. And all of this, it seems to me, is part of his calling, the very embodiment of the righteousness of God. And it is this righteousness of God that he is about to expound in this letter. Romans 1.15, so for my part, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The righteousness of God, he's going to say, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But then he's going to go, so he's basically about to lay out the way it is that negative judgment will then merge with positive judgment. And the way that God is working out through the world, his purposes in the world. 
all of this he describes as the righteousness of God. Now we will see the various dimensions of the gospel and God's power that is revealed in it as we proceed. And but but for the time being, I think we should we should probably step back. Is I find myself doing this all the time. It's like examine your calling. Examine why you're in the world. Right. That's that's the question. Why are we in the world, and why are we called in the Messiah right now? Why is it? We all have to figure this out, and it's something that um, it, it's not going to be the same for everyone, of course. I mean, you have some who are helping the apostle on his way. You have some who are, who are apostles themselves or prophets themselves or, or preachers or pastors or whatever. Uh, so you, but we have to examine this constantly and see where we fit within within the purpose of God, and then to locate that within the overall story of what God is doing in the world. And it's there, as I mentioned uh, very often, it's there that we ultimately find our identity. Most of us, no, maybe not most of us, some of us don't like to be alone in silence because we don't know who we are. We sit we have silence, we cannot stand the voice that is ringing in our mind. Examine ourselves. We have to examine ourselves and come to, uh, come to a grip with who we are in the Messiah. Uh, if there's those, I, I'm convinced that God is, raising up, God is raising up people in this generation. He's raising up people who will take his word and who will live it and who will proclaim it. And I want, to, I want to really encourage you all to, to consider your calling. It's not a calling that will get you rich, that's for sure. But it is a calling where you will be secure within the purposes of God, and you will, you will ultimately receive the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus.